Hak Sameach. I'm going to try something new today with Hangouts. I'm going to share my screen so we can all follow the Mishneh Torah together. We are doing the second chapter of Ilchotis of the Torah, having done the first chapter in two parts yesterday. Okay, so we are starting right now with Chotis Odea Torah Perek Bet, Halacha Aleph. Ha'el ha'nichbad ve'hanora ha'zeh. Misvah le'ohavo u'lir'am immenu. Sh'ne'emar ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha. This God that we described in the first chapter, who is nichbad, is... Worthy of our kavod, is worthy of our nora, our our fear. There is a mitzvah to love him and to fear him. As one pasuk says, Adonai you shall love Hashem, your Lord. Adonai Another pasuk says, you shall fear God, your Lord. So how do we do that? How can it be a misvah to love him and to fear him? What is the, the path? What is the way by which one can love and fear God? When a person ponders upon, looks, Ibonen is, is to look into, but it's to look into intently, to, to contemplate, to think about. In God's deeds and creations, Haniflaim, the wonderful ones, Hagedolim, the great, awesome ones. And from there, you realize that the wisdom of the Almighty has no bounds, is infinite. Miyad means as a consequence. Consequently, the person gets filled with love. And this, uh, it ha- he has this urge to praise umfa'er and to, and to, um, uh, is to, to, uh, Another word for praise to to um, let's use praise for now. and he gets filled with a tremendous desire to know him, to know his great his greatness. Kemoshe Amar David, like David said, David Amelech is is the one who expressed in Tehillim a lot of Tehillim, a lot of Psalms are about this feeling, this very feeling of feeling this thirst to know Hashem, and at the same time, this feeling of, uh, of, uh, of awe and admiration and fear, trepidation before God. So David says, My soul is thirsty, is thirsty to want to know the Lord, the living God. But, However, 
when the person stops for a moment and starts thinking about this very thing. So, okay, so I go out at night, I see the stars, I see the galaxies, I understand the awesomeness of creation of the cosmos. And immediately I feel, I get filled with this thirst. I really, really, really want to know more about the creator. But at the same time, when I stop and think about what this means, okay, so wow. So each one of those stars is how many times bigger than the earth? And, and then you start realizing how small and relatively insignificant we are. Immediately the person is taken aback. And the person becomes uh, fearful. He has awe. And, and he knows, he understands that he is but a small creature. Lowly and dark. Whose intellect is is very limited, very uh, short-reaching, and here he is standing before the one whose intellect, whose intelligence created all of this. As David Amelech himself also said, again, as we mentioned, David Amelech is the one who expressed best these kinds of feelings. So he said in Tehillim, Het, as I look into your heavens, the deeds, the handiwork of, of your fingers to God, the, the, the moon, the sun that you established, then immediately David Amelech continues, the, the, the thought that comes to my mind is, who are we? What are we, we human beings, that we deserve your attention? Do we deserve your attention after... You have such an amazing world that you created. So that's the feeling. Again, the same feeling derived from the same kind of observation. You start by looking at nature. You start by looking at the world, creation, what God created, that you lead with a feeling of thirst. You want to know more about God. And then the, the sobering feeling of trepidation and of awesomeness and of understanding the unbridgeable infinite gap between creation and creator takes over. And that's how you fulfill Ahava, followed by Gira. So basically, there are two sides of the same coin. You start with Ahava, you start by this desire to reach closer, and as you investigate and think more and try to reach closer, you realize how far you are. That is, by the way, also the process of knowledge in the Torah. And not only Torah knowledge, but knowledge everywhere. Isaac Newton had a similar experience when he discovered what he discovered. Anyone who really, truly engages in wisdom, in truism, in science, they start investigating something. They become extremely, extremely curious and thirsty to know more and more and more. And as they know more and as they advance more, they realize how little they know and how much more there is to know that they haven't. And probably will never be able to know. And given this, I'm going to, Haramam says, I'm going to explain some of the generalities of the creation that God made so that they serve as a basis, as the, as the, the, the heads of the chapters 
for whoever does want to continue investigating and to come to this love of Hashem. Like Hachamim said about Ahava, about love, how do you fulfill this? You shall love Hashem. Because by engaging in Ahava, you are going to discover he who said and the world came to be. There is by hint a third element here. And the spiral that Haramam is describing with this third element, it becomes a little more complete. So it works as follows. It's Ahava. You get filled with a desire, a drive, a thirst to know more, which brings you to Yir'ah. It's this sobering feeling of understanding, hey, I cannot know that much. I'm not all that great. And that combination of Ahava and Yir'ah, that spiral, Ahava leading to Yir'ah, leading to Ahava, leading to Yir'ah, is what we call Da'at, is what we call the knowledge of Hashem. What does it mean to know Hashem? There's nothing to know, as we said in the last chapter. There is nothing in common between God's reality and our reality. But the way you know Him, the way you become aware of Him, is by going through this process. And that's what Hamim are saying. From this feeling of Ahava, you can come to identify, to know the one who said in the world came to be, namely God. Dalit. <clears throat> and right now, just a small introduction, Harambam is going to to introduce a few concepts that at his time were top of the line, super advanced science, Aristotelian science. In our days, many of these concepts are perhaps outdated and we should come up with our own, our own principles to establish our understanding of the universe from which we'll desire to know more God and understand how little we know and can know but I think that in broad strokes, at least the categories that Haramam is describing, I think they still are relevant. So we are going to try to make it a little more relevant, but there is nothing wrong with understanding that if Harambam had lived today, he would have written this chapter with much more, uh, with concepts that probably have to do with quantum mechanics and, uh, and astronomy and I don't know what else. There is three categories of things that God created in this world. There is creations, there is creatures that are comprised of golem. Golem means the substance, the material. I'm going to translate to our terms. We know today that all matter, in essence, is energy. E equals mc squared. So I'm going to translate golem as substance here, vetsura. Sura means organization, or another word for it, more in tune with our days, programming. Everything you see around you is made of these two things. There is substance and there is programming. The difference between gold and oxygen is not in the substance. It's exactly the same stuff. The subparticles of gold and of oxygen are the same. But if you look at the subparticles, it's the way they are organized, the way that the energy is organized, that the configuration, excellent, the configuration, this programming is what makes gold different than oxygen and so forth and so on. So uh, the substance ends up being the same, but it's the Suda what matters. So 
some Beruim, some uh, creatures are made of golem, physical substance, and configuration, organization, programming, like gold, like oxygen. And what they have in common is that they are in a constant state of some form of instability. This is also true. In quantum mechanics, this is true. The, the, the subparticles are constantly in flux. They're moving, disappearing, reappearing, merging with one another. Um, at that level, maybe some things can exist at the same time in different places, etc., etc. And I mean, constant state of chaos, of flux. Kemo, as an example, Gufot Adam, the bodies of human beings, Adam was precise, not the human beings themselves, but their bodies, they have behema, animals, they have semachim, they have matachot, vegetables, metals. There some other creatures that are composed of substance and of surah and of programming, of configuration. But they are not so unstable, they are stable. If we have to translate to our terms, we are referring to the very large scale of nature. So the planets, the stars, everything else, they are made of the same stuff. But at that scale, whatever instability, whatever chaos that happens in the subatomic scale does not affect the large scale. So taken as is, that large scale is 100% stable. Rather, their programming, their configuration is stable and it stays there, it can stay there forever. And they don't change like the first kind. And these are the Galgalim. Galgalim were, was a concept in Harambam's time from Ptolemy, not to be confused with the, the, one of the generals of, of Alexander the Great, a scientist that, uh, that uh, he thought that the earth was at the center and around the earth were, as if it were, onion layers, one on top of the other, made of a material called ether, which was a very fine crystal. And inside that ether, inside each one of those layers, you had the moon and the sun, etc. And as those layers moved around one another, whatever was in them would move with them as well. Those are the Galgalim, but if we want to translate it to our terms, Galgalim would be the actual movements, the orbits, the trajectories of the planets. So those two, it doesn't matter that you know, we might still find some particles having to do with gravity and the gravitons, and we might realize that those particles also are unstable, but it does not affect the way that these orbits function. And the stars that are within them. And their, their substance is not like the rest of the substances, nor is their programming like the rest of the programming. And if you want to translate it to today, not that we have to again, but there is out there in the cosmos things that we can only perceive in the cosmos out there and not here, although it's everywhere. There is things that have nothing to do with the 4% or so of the substance of the universe, which is visible matter. There is dark matter, there is dark energy, and many other things that scientists don't even know what, what, what it is, but they just know there is something out there. There is something out there responsible for the movement of the galaxies, for the configuration of the stars, 
that cannot be attributable to the day-to-day matter we encounter in the physical universe that we are familiar with. There is also some beings, a third category of beings, that are configuration alone without any substance. They are only pure programming. These are what we call the angels. These are beings that do not belong in time and space. Time and space is not for the programming. Time and space is for the substance. They are mizuk. They are uh, forms of life, or, or, or organisms, that are distinct, separate from one another. So why do the prophets say that they see angels, and when they see angels, they look like they are made of fire, and that they have wings, both of which are physical things. Fire is gas, and Kenafaim wings obviously are made of some matter. This is all in a prophetic vision, and it's a metaphor, it's a parable for something. What is the parable? Lomar, as if to say, the fire part comes to tell you it's not physical. Because if you think about this, the, the least tangible thing that we can see, we can see it, we can see the fire, we know it's there. But it's the least tangible because once you try to grab it, it's no longer there, it's fire. Fire represents in human consciousness something that is not physical because you can see it's there, but you cannot grab it. You can feel it. You cannot put a shape to it. It's constantly moving. If you get too close to it, you get burnt. So fire is to tell you it's not physical. And what are the wings for? The wings are to tell you that it's not subject to gravity. When something has wings, it means it can fly, it's not attached to the ground. The eno kaveta it doesn't, it's not affected by gravity like massive objects. Like it said about God himself, God your Lord, he is a consuming fire. Not that God is made of fire, but in the sense that in human consciousness, fire means he's not physical. And if you try to get too close, even in your mind, to try to understand what he is, you'll get burnt. You're not equipped for handling this. The Enoesh, God is not fire, Elam Mashal is a metaphor. Also says that God makes his angels be winds. Wind is another word for something that's not physical. We see the leaves moving on a tree, we don't see what's moving them. We know the wind is there, but we cannot see it. So that's another symbol that in the human consciousness means something that's not physical. Now, a bracket. So we are saying that there is more than one angel, but we are also saying that they are not made of substance. We said in the last chapter, things, in order to be capable of being counted, if I want to say that this is one finger, this is a second finger, the only way by which these two fingers are separate and distinct from each other are by characteristics, traits, that have to do with coordinates of time and space. So if something does not belong to time and space, how can I say that there is more than one angel? It should all merge into one vague, uh, amorphous idea of an angel. So no, Haramam is going to explain now there is a possibility of numerosity, of numbers in non-physical things. 
household. ובמה יפלדו הצלות זו מזו והרי אינם גופים לפי שאינם שווים, לפי שאינם שווים במציאתן. The, the reason is that they are not within the same frame of existence. They do not exist in the same dimension, in the same reality. אלא כל אחד מהן למטה ממעלתו של חברו, each of them is beneath the reality of the other. והוא מצוי מכוחו, and he exists as a function of the other. זה למעלה מזה. One, on top of the other, I'm going to go back now to the metaphor that I started with last class. I think it's very useful right now. Imagine a comic strip, and you have one character that is thinking a cloud, and there's three little bubbles coming from his head. He's thinking this cloud. Inside this cloud, there is another character who also has his own cloud. And inside that cloud, another character, also with another thinking cloud, and so on and so forth. That is an example of one reality being inside another reality. And although they are not in the same reality, we can call them. So if, if I did this for 10 times, I can say right now there is 10 different kinds of reality. So too with angels, in a way, again, imperfect analogy, but take, imagine that each of these angels is a character that has this thinking, this thought cloud, And inside this thought cloud, there is another angel with a thought cloud. And at the 10th level is the thought cloud that has within it the physical universe. That's pretty much what we are about to describe. Sorry. And eventually, ultimately, all of them only exist because God himself is thinking them all. וזהו שרמז שלמה בחוכמתו ואמר, and this is what שלמה המלך hinted in his tremendous wisdom when he said, כי גבוה מעל גבוה שומר וגבוהים עליהם. For one, referring to the angels, one is um, maintaining another one on top of the other, and the ultimate one is on top of them all, meaning God. זה שאמרנו למטה ממעלתו אינה מעלת מקום כמו אדם שיושב למעלה מחברו. What we are saying on top of or under, we are not talking about, uh, again, coordinates of time and space, like we say, uh, I'm sitting on, on the top uh, row in the movie theater and someone is sitting on the bottom row. We are not talking about posi- physical positioning. So we are talking about reality, levels of reality, like the clouds that I just described. Rather, it's like we say about two sages, that one is greater than the other. That his, uh, his, uh, his level is higher than the level of the first one. And as we can say also about cause and effect, that the cause is above the effect. So when we say above or on top of, we are referring to a relationship more like a uh, cause and effect. Again, like the clouds, the thought clouds that I described in the comic strip, Mashal, more so than physical positioning. The 
the, the change in the names, the different names that these Malachim have, has to do with their, with their level. Ulfichach Nikra'im, and that's why they are called the following. These are the ten names of angels that are found in the Tanakh. Hayot HaKodesh, Vehem Lema'ala Minakol, the ones who live from the Holy One, and these are the ones that are above all of them, and again, just footnote, look at what above means in the Halakha before. Ofanim, Ofanim really means um, facets. The Ar Elim, Ar Elim, I do not know what it means. The Hashmalim, Hashmal is a pretty deep concept discussing Morihan Nebuchim. Hachamim says it's towards Hashmal. Hash means uh, silence. Mal means talk. It's silent communication or a successive a su- successive chain of silence and communication, Hashmalim, Usrafim, Usrafim is something that burns, Umalachim, Malachim means agents, the Elohim, Elohim means authorities, lords, Uvne Elohim, the ones under the Elohim, Uchruvim, Keruvim is a word that, according to some explanations, means Rachuv, is the one that is ridden, as if the ones who carry on the will of the one who is guiding them. The Ishim. Ishim means uh, Sirs. Sirs. S-I-R-S. So ten levels of Malachim. And these ten names that we say about the angels are, they correspond to the ten Ma'alot, to the ten, um, the ten levels of existence that they have. And the level above which the only thing that exists is God himself is a level of creatures, of organizations, of organisms that is called Hayot. Hayot means the ones, the living ones, or the ones who live from. That's why Yehezkel HaNavi saw them as if it were under the heavenly throne. To symbolize, to signify, not that there is a heavenly throne, not that you can see these angels or anything that's not physical, but just to tell you, this was how Yehezkel learned that there is a kind of being whose existence depends of nothing but of God. Umala Asiri, and the tenth one, the lowliest of the Malachim, is the being that is called Ishim. And these are the angels that can communicate or that do communicate with the Nevi'im, with the, with the, the, the prophets, and the ones that they see in the prophecies, in the Nevi'ah. That's why we, we call them sirs. Ish means sir, it also means human beings. Because they are the closest to what human beings are. In all of these beings, Hayim umakirim et habore viodein oto dea gedola ad meod. In all of these beings, they Hayim means they experience and they and they know they perceive the, their Creator a, a great perception that we'll never be able to to achieve ourselves. One second, sorry. Okay, it's working. 
every being and being is going to be perceiving God according to their own capability. Not according to God's own greatness. In other words, if they, if, uh, if the Hayot, let's, let's just say, uh, just for, for purposes of illustration, let's say they understand God at level 10, and the Ishim, they understand God at level 1, it doesn't mean that the Hayot know 10% of God and the Ishim know 1% of God. Everybody knows 0% of God. There's nothing that can be known of God because just by being a creator, it's a categorically different kind of reality that cannot be discerned from the creation from the creation standpoint. So what they know is in terms of their own understanding, not in terms of what God Himself is. And this is, by the way, a consistent theme in epistemology, in, in the way the Torah thinks of knowledge, of knowing things. It's not what you know, it's what level you are from which you perceive. Again, it's not what you know. I can be looking at the rose, and Yeshayahu Hanavi can be looking at the rose. We are seeing the same thing, but it's not what we are seeing, it's how we are seeing. The rose, to me, might just mean, oh, how pretty, look how nice, it smells good. To Yeshayahu, maybe when he looks at the rose, he immediately, the process he goes through is going through the creation of the rose, understanding where the rose is coming from, how the rose is made of, what the rose means, about humanity, what the role means about the world, etc., etc. So it's not what is being seen, which in the case of God is absolutely nothing, but it's the level from which is, this is being perceived. Even the first level of angels, the Hayot, uh, they, they can only know what they can know, and, and they, they cannot know what God is himself as if it were. Yud Aleph. Also the ten levels of Malachim, the Ishim, know God in a way that human beings will never be able to know. But nobody can know God like he knows himself. All beings, all creatures, other than the Creator. So again, we have two broad categories, Creator and Creation. All beings other than the Creator, from the Hayot Kodesh until the lowliest thing, we'll call it today a, a, a bacteria, a, a flagellum. In their, in their terms, the lowliest thing they could think of was a mosquito, a small mosquito, that lives deep inside, an insect that lives deep, deep inside the soil. Everything exists as a function of God's reality, of God's existence. Given that he knows himself and he knows his greatness and his glory and his reality, God, therefore, by that knowledge, he knows everything that derives from it, which is all of 
the existence and nothing that happens can escape him. Again, imperfect analogy, but think again about that character that has the ultimate thought bubble. And then everything happens within that thought bubble. That's, in a very imperfect analogy, something that helps us come to grasp with this concept. Now something extremely, extremely profound, Harambam dedicates a few chapters in Moreha Nebuchim to discuss this, very difficult chapters. God knows his own being, his own reality, as it is. Not as an external kind of information. When I know something, if, I, if I'm reading this word Hakadosh, there is an external process that I'm absorbing, I'm encoding into my mind, which ends up being external to me. My experiencing self and the knowledge that is being experienced are two separate things. But God does not know in a way that's external to him. We and our knowledge are not the same. But the Creator, who He and his knowledge and his experiencing of that knowledge, that's what Hayim means, not biological life, it's experiencing. From every way you look at it, it's all one and the same. If it wasn't the case, we'd have more than one, and that would be an issue. He and his experiencing self, and that which he's experiencing. When Hadavarken, but that's not the case. Eli had is one from whichever way you look at him, even from the point of view of how he knows. I'm going fast, not because this is very easy to understand, but because it's extremely difficult to understand, and I don't have the expertise, and definitely not the time to explain this. Yodaladimseta Omer. So you conclude, he is the knower, he is the, the known, and his knowledge itself, all one. And this thing, it's impossible to articulate with the mouth, it's impossible to understand it if you heard it, even as an internal thought process, it's, important, it's impossible to understand Al-Burio. And that's why, when we talk about Life, which again in Hebrew, life and experience are the same word. When you say when you, when you say the life of someone, you yeah. want to talk about the life of Paro, let's say, and you want to say, I swear by the by the life of Paro, you say He Paro, the life of Paro. He means Hayim Shel. or by your own life, as if to say, there is you and there is your life. But we don't say the life of God, we say the living God. We make a point, we are careful not to separate between God's life as if it were and himself, not to imply that there is more than one component. Because you cannot separate the life or the experiencing self of God, of the Creator, and himself, like we do with biological beings, or even like the angels. The angels also have a life and experiencing self that is not necessarily their own self. 
לפיכך אינו מכיר הברואים ויודעם מחמת הברואים כמות שאנו יודעים אותם, אלא מחמת עצמו ידעם. לפיכך, מפני שהוא יודע עצמו ידע הכל, שהכל נסמך בהווייתו, לא. So he doesn't know creation, he doesn't know creatures like we know external things. If I'm learning about a zebra, I'm learning about something external to me, and therefore the information I acquire about this zebra is going to be separate from myself. But God, he knows everything from creation, and therefore he doesn't know the way we know. He knows everything, and he knows differently than we. The most important point, the takeaway for us is that God's knowledge, God's understanding, the way he knows, is not the same way that we know. Which means, for our purposes, we may not use concepts of human knowledge, of human understanding, to ask questions about God. Harambam makes this point at the very end of the book of Madai, that the question of how does God know the future and yet leave room for freedom of choice is a non sequitur. It follows from projecting unto God the human thought process, which is inappropriate. It's not the case. These things that we discuss in these two chapters on this matter, just know this is but a drop from the ocean in everything that a person could investigate on this issue. And the investigation of all the roots, of all the, the fundamentals that are discussed, that are touched upon in these two chapters, what Hachamim always called the... The, the, the subject of the chariot, the chariot. The mashal of the chariot, which signifies the deepest aspect of the Torah, is, I believe, um, it's the investigation of how God conducts creation. Just like a Merkava chariot, uh, you could investigate how the chariot is being driven, what does the driving, what direction, etc. That is called Maaseh Merkava. And it's uh, obviously a very, very, very deep subject, not for everyone, definitely not at the very beginning of, of our learning. Yudzayim. The first Hachamim, they prescribe to us that one should, shall not, one may not expound upon these things, but except to one single person. You can teach these things to one person at a time. And this is on the condition that this one person is hacham, he's already a sage. This is a key term. We're not going to discuss it right now. And someone who will fill the blanks by himself or someone who will write his own books. To borrow another analogy, the only role a teacher can play in instructing in Maase Merkava is to give, a to give a student that is worthy seeds that the student will then grow into his own orchard. The teacher is not supposed to, and it would defeat the, the purpose indeed, give the student trees. The teacher is supposed to give seeds to the student the student will grow them in his own subjective way into his own arch orchard that will then become his own, not his teachers. 
again, it's not what you know. What you know is irrelevant. At the end of the day, Moshe Rabbeinu was told the same thing we all can know after these two chapters. God cannot be known. Moshe Rabbeinu himself got that, that same information. But it's how you perceive that little piece of information. Just like the example of the flower in Yeshua, and myself. That is what matters. Therefore, it's not what seeds and what plants is this or orchard going to have eventually. But what matters is how these plants are going to be grown. And this is a subjective student from which the student grows. The student grows by growing these plants. The student doesn't grow by having these plants. Then the teacher gives him the heads of the chapters, these seeds. And he instructs this one individual worthy student a very small hint of the subject. And he develops it on his own. And comes and arrives to the profundity of the matter. And these things are extremely profound things. And it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. Not all men are created equal in terms of intellectual capability. This is a, a fact of life. Just like not all men are created equal in terms of physical capability. I cannot dunk. I've tried. I cannot dunk. A lot of people are not going to... I, I cannot understand things that Naveen can understand. And about these things which we started discussing, we presented very briefly in these two chapters, Shalom HaMelech says, in, in, as a metaphor, this should be, this should be uh, pickled by your clothes, uh, 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 by your clothes, as if it were. And this is explained. Chachamim uh, take these two words to, 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 be a, to be a different kind of metaphor. This is how Hamim interpreted this metaphor. Things that constitute means that which is hidden at the, at the very, very depth of the world, the, the deepest of things, they should be your own garments. In other words, just like your own garments, you're not wearing them at the same time as other people. So to whatever you achieve, whatever orchard you end up growing, it should be your own orchard. The Alti do not teach these things in public. And he further said, He also said, let them be for you and for you alone. It should be for you alone, and don't let strangers join you in those things. And he further said, This should be like honey and, and uh, fatty milk under your tongue. What does it mean? This is how the first sages interpreted, interpreted this. Things that are as sweet as honey, or as, uh, as fatty as milk, they should be kept under your tongue. In other words, do not take them out of your tongue by saying them, by explaining them in public. Leave them for yourself. Um, just a couple of concluding remarks. Number one, as an aside, Shalomu HaMelech, as we mentioned before, he was sidestepped in the chain of tradition 
in, in the Hakdama, we had 40 generations, Shlomo HaMelech was very conspicuously skipped over to give room to an anachronism, to, to uh, Ahiyah Shiloni, because we could not tolerate what he did. What he did was, uh, he married uh, he married Nashim Nochriot, he did Avodah Zarah at the end of his life. However, Shlomo HaMelech still remains the utmost, as if it were, authority or source for esoteric material. And that has to do with this. It has to do with the fact that um, esoteric material is not something that is transmitted by one person to the other. It's forbidden to be transmitted from, by one person to the other. All that you can get from the other person is a seed, and you are the one who develops it yourself. So it's not that Shlomo HaMelech is doing these things. It's not Shlomo HaMelech who is growing this orchard for us. He's just giving us seeds. So we'll take his seeds and we'll grow our own orchard, as opposed to Torah Shabbat, which would be a real transmission. And one last point. It's important to understand about the world of the angels and about other worlds for, I think, one primary reason. The one primary reason, the same reason that we discussed in the first chapter, is that we should not feel all that great about ourselves. It's not a good approach to think that man is the ultimate reality, which would also mean that God is in function of man. No, man is not even the ultimate creation. That's what this chapter is telling us. This chapter is, this chapter is telling us, lower your ego, lower your feeling of self-importance. Not everything is about you. In fact, your reality is but the 10th level, is, is a function, is an image of a 10th level of reality, each of which depends on the other one when God is above them all. And we can't even start to fathom to understand what that means. All to give us the feeling of Anava of uh, of modesty, not thinking that we are the center of the universe.